Welcome to the latest More Than a Number ICAEW podcast. The coronavirus has wrought economic disruption on a monumental scale. The resultant global recession is expected by the IMF to be the worst downturn since the Great Depression of the 1930s. No business will be unaffected. But as the environmentalist, the Prince of Wales, said recently, this is a golden opportunity to seize something good from the crisis, a chance to create a more sustainable and equitable society. The World Economic Forum that runs Davos has dubbed it the Great Reset. And in a recent blog, the chief executive of the ICAUW, Michael Itzer, calls for a crisis with a legacy and demands, can we build something better? as read by one of my colleagues. Whilst right now we're all hands on deck firefighting, we must acknowledge that COVID-19 is a chapter of a wider unfolding gruesome threesome of climate emergency, massive biodiversity loss and increasing inequality. What began as a virus jumping species as a result of deforestation, intensive agriculture, climate change, wildlife trafficking and wet markets rapidly has become a human health crisis. Now it's become a global economic crisis, reinforcing existing inequalities. But this is our wake-up call. Many are demanding that we press the reset button to achieve something better. We need to find a way forward that brings together the needs of the economy and society, but one that's also rooted in nature's carrying capacity. Business needs to rise to the challenges that have developed and find a way forward through the storm. But what will the world look like on the other side? A recent Oxfam report shows the disproportionate impact so far on the most vulnerable. The solution has to be one that works for us all as well as the planet. As businesses, if we do not solve this, our liabilities will be beyond measure and our assets will have no value. Listening to that with me is Susan Cocksmith, futurist at changes.com. Welcome, Susan. Hello, yes. Before you comment on that, can you just explain what Changes does, what, what you do as a futurist? Changes is a collaborative team of strategists, writers, and designers who put a critical lens on grounded research and narrative design for the exploration of near, next, and far futures. Great quote. Susan, press the reset button to achieve something better. Powerful stuff. What are your thoughts? Absolutely, I would agree. Um, in fact, upon reading the blog, I thought very much that this read as uh, very similarly to something that we might write as provocation for our clients to help them engage more fully with thinking about change, uncertainty in the future. I was very heartened by uh, this commentary, and there was one particular sentence that stood out for me when he said, comprehending and making sense of risk, uncertainty, and opportunity, and helping craft a way forward through the storm is what we do. Well, that's actually what we do as futurists as well. So I was very, very hopeful after reading this article. This is the blog. Also listening, Anna Leach, Deputy Chief Economist at the CBI, the Confederation of British Industry. Hello, Anna. Hello. I love, as businesses, if we do not solve this, our liabilities will be beyond measure and our assets will have no value. I mean, this is a call to action. Very much so. It's a huge challenge to us all, isn't it, to um, take the opportunity that this crisis presents to really look at 
what matters, refocus ourselves, our businesses towards delivering what really matters for the future world. And we do actually hear this a bit at the CBI from companies that they're not losing sight of the importance, for example, of delivering on greener priorities, even in the midst of this hugely challenging environment. For both of you, I would point out, as the ICAW's blog pointed out, the global financial crisis, well, didn't really change that much. Susan? I would say that what that sort of falls into is what we call official futures. So there's a very real tendency for organizations to think that moving forward means always up and to the right and that you want to aim for that in every change or pivot that you try to make in future situations. So what it does is it hamstrings organizations often because they can't see a way to shift out of their official future and look at other opportunity spaces and possibilities. And Anna, many would argue the global financial crisis hasn't had a great legacy. That wasn't an opportunity to change. Why would this one be? I think we learned a lot from the global financial crisis. It was a very, very big shock to companies, but to government in particular, so much government money was spent. It's so rare for that to happen outside of wartime. So government was very focused at the time on their own financial position. Now, with COVID, but also with that memory of the global financial crisis, government can say, this is another shock with ramifications for government finances. What can we take away from our response to the global financial crisis and learn to do better this time? Well, some companies are actually doing relatively well in the crisis, but that doesn't mean the pandemic isn't without its challenges. I'm Imran Navas. I work at Tate & Lyle. I'm the chief financial officer of the company. So prior to coming into the whole pandemic event, if you wish, we actually were doing really well. We had strong performances in every region of the world that we operate in, I mean, truly in a global sense. Our balance sheet was very strong. So as we entered the pandemic, we saw really two opposing drivers, one into a positive direction and one into a negative direction. And what we saw was that the demand for the ingredients uh, was benefit. So we saw growth. And if you can imagine the pantry loading effects in North America or Europe, people stocking up on food. And frankly, people eating more food at home is not a bad thing when you are a key ingredient supplier. At the same time, we had to accept the fact that some of restaurants or bars or sport events are closed, which means the end consumer wasn't there to buy it. And, and that was therefore offsetting some of that growth. And that's a balanced act that we you know, have been seeing since the beginning of the pandemic. We learned a few things about ourselves and our company. First, we learned how to work remotely, whether that was for all the office-based employees. We sent everyone home earlier in the lockdown period, and that ensured that people were connected via Microsoft Teams, and we continued to work. We actually closed our books and released our financial earnings during the lockdown period, which if you ask me, before going into the year, can you do that? I've said that's insane. But here we were, we did it, and we hit every deadline. The second thing that we learned about ourselves was that we have amazing people in the plants. They continued to go to the plants, and we really delivered 
consistency. So none of our plants were closed. I'd say the third thing, it refocused our energies on ensuring that we protect our strong financial position. So we established, for example, a cash war room, you know, where daily we would get together with salespeople, with finance people, treasury folks, and just make sure we're doing the right thing on cash. We looked at our capital commitments with a sense of urgency, and we managed to ensure that nothing critical was cut. We were able to raise $200 million of extra debt in a market at record low interest rates. Maybe the last one that I'd like to mention here is as a food company, most of the time you work in labs, right? Our frontline people work in labs around the world and reformulate food, you know, with ingredients. And what we ended up doing was we said, look, we can't just stop reformulating. We will send our employees to the labs in a safe way, socially distanced with the right level of PPE and the right hygiene conditions. And we will send the samples to our customers via the mail and they will have virtual tasting sessions so that we learned also that, you know, actually you can continue to do business, continue to reformulate and drive interactions with your customers despite being locked down around the world. And I thought all of those things that I just mentioned made me feel quite proud, but also makes me rethink a little bit how we, the work of the future and how that looks like for Tate & Lyle. And I think it's clear to me that even in a post-pandemic world, we will not or should not ignore the learnings. Imran Nava's Chief Financial Officer at Tate & Lyle, what grabbed you from what Imran said, Susan? I think what was very, very interesting about this statement was how much he was acknowledging that there is change and uncertainty on the horizon and that they are seeking to do things in the face of this uncertainty that will maintain their financial position, maintain trust in their employees, and also acknowledge that there will be changes in consumer behaviors coming and that they want to meet that challenge of anticipating or pivoting to meet that. It feels like a very, very healthy outlook and very positive, and it gives them a strong position to continue to survive and thrive in the future. Interesting you say strong and positive, because Tate and Lyle, one of the few remaining big quoted companies in mm -hmm. the UK, choosing to continue to pay a dividend. Anna, what did you make of what Imran had to say? So I think it was quite heartening in a way. As, as Susan says, they, they clearly have a very positive perspective on the challenges that they're facing into. It was interesting hearing about how they've reflected on how consumer demand has changed and the extent to which that might um, remain the case for the future. It was good to hear about how the level of trust they have in their employees has been affected too, who've had to suddenly shift to work in a completely different environment in a completely different way to continue to deliver. It's great to hear companies having a really positive experience about having to make really fundamental changes in how they operate. And great too to hear about how they've continued to prioritise research and development during this really challenging time. That's certainly not been the case for a lot of companies who've had to really batten down the hatches um, and focus on core business and cash management. So a really positive story overall, I think. I mean, almost the crisis has spurred all these creative, clever 
things. Definitely. I mean, we know that crises very much do that, don't they? They really put the pressure on to be innovative and agile and respond swiftly to challenges. And this crisis is certainly given lots of opportunity to do that. It changes day to day. You're never quite sure what challenges around the corner with this virus. And so it's so good to hear a company talking about a really healthy and positive engagement with those challenges. Well, let's now hear from another company making the most of this crisis, this time a smaller firm in bioscience. Hello, my name's Professor Rob Field. I'm one of the founders and current CEO of an SME based on the Norwich Research Park, ICINI Diagnostics. The company is focused on developing the next generation of tools to get early detection of infectious diseases to better inform the prescription of antibiotics or other drugs. We've been running for about five or six years now, and the current climate is challenging, shall we say. So until the coronavirus became an issue, we were very much focusing on products opportunities in influenza. Now, for a small company to break into a large biomedical market is challenging. So we were very much focused on the niche opportunity around equine influenza. However, of course, once the coronavirus outbreak came on board, it became a little difficult to justify remaining open as an SME to work on a veterinary product. But what we have in common between influenza virus and coronavirus, they both infect animals by recognition of carbohydrates on the surface of cells. And this is very much the forte of the company. How can we generate materials that mimic cell surfaces, synthetic biology, if you will, and use that to diagnose and discriminate between infectious agents such as influenza and coronavirus? So we very much pivoted the company, recognizing the opportunity to focus on coronavirus. And from nowhere to having samples ready for assessment in the clinical microbiology laboratories at the Norfolk and Norwich Hospital, within two months, we've taken huge steps forward in a direction that we never expected to go in. So the focus at the moment is very much around diagnosis rather than therapy. I think everyone's conscious of how long it takes, even in the current position, to get a response to a coronavirus diagnostic. Icini Diagnostics is very much trying to develop something that's akin to a pregnancy test kit, something that's technically simple, easy to use, could be used at home, rather than having to send a sample away for analysis. So that's very much our focus, is that point of care, cheap, rapid diagnosis, so that we can put that in the hands of the individual so you can make a decision about whether you're fit to go back to work, for instance. It's a challenge to do anything in either diagnostics or therapeutics quickly. There's lots of regulations. So we've had to jump a number of hurdles. We've had to get very heavily involved with NHS partners in order to get access to clinical samples. So it's really driven us to do all of the difficult things, but very rapidly. So it's really opened up many new opportunities for us. And it makes us much more aware as a business of what is required to take an academic idea really through to a commercial product. I think what we've learned in the last few months has really made us very hard-nosed about what it takes to take something out to the marketplace. But we've also been presented with many and varied opportunities. In the coronavirus area, we've been approached by people in Europe. We've been approached by major clinics in the US. We've been approached by major companies, international companies, wishing to take our technology on board because it is very different than what's already in the marketplace. Vaccines are the ultimate goal if one can achieve it. It's going to be difficult. 
but the benefits would be enormous. We all recognise the benefits of having standard seasonal influenza vaccines and the protection that that provides. We very much hope that that will be the case for coronavirus going forward, but it, coronavirus is more tricky to develop a vaccine against than is influenza. So we hope for the best, but we need to keep an eye on all of the other opportunities for managing the infection process anyway. Professor Rob Field from Iceni Diagnostics. Susan, what I found interesting about what he was saying was that literally within weeks, he had changed the focus of his business from equine flu to the human coronavirus. I mean, that's sort of fairly extraordinary, no? Yes, actually, it was quite a radical shift for them to make, even though they were working on animal flu and already had some of the pieces in place, to be able to recognize the opportunity space of radically shifting into a new direction and making all of those changes so quickly um, speaks to a very futures-focused kind of organization. He even uses words that we use sometimes like opportunity space and scenarios and listening to him, I hear an organization that asks itself, what if or what's next, and is able to anticipate and be comfortable with uncertainty, but also being able to quickly make decisions and move in a direction. You're not advising him, are you, Susan? (laughs) (laughs) I wish we were. (laughs) Maybe they don't need your advice. (laughs) Possibly not. (laughs) And Iceni Diagnostics is one of a number of companies benefiting from a UK government grant. I think Iceni is getting about 50 grand. And Anna, because this is like a human health crisis, and the government is getting involved in the economy in an extraordinary way. Is this what's different this time around? Is that the partnership between government and business is just so much more important because of the nature of the crisis? I think it's definitely very different to last time. I mean, if you're thinking about the global financial crisis, that was very much um, a relationship between government and the financial sector and with regulators. Whereas this time, it's a much more deep-rooted crisis, which affects a lot of companies and all of us in highly complex ways. Um, So inevitably, that means a far more in-depth approach from government with involvement in lots of different moving parts in the economy and in the delivery of public services. And what are businesses telling you about that need to get far closer to government in a way that many of them haven't done before? They don't feel necessarily like their views are always being fully considered. We definitely have a lot of government engagement from the CBI perspective. And government is obviously very concerned with the economic impact as well as the health impact of covid And obviously, the government is dealing with so many difficult and urgent decisions at the moment that there is clearly more engagement with businesses on the horizon to really help build a really strong working relationship so that we can help build an economy for the future. One of the positives of lockdown has been the fall in car use and resultant pollution, something many of us will miss and may accelerate the move to a greener economy. My name is Thomas Delgado. I'm the CEO and founder of Pollution Solution. 
we have a patented solution to control road-based emissions in both the roadway, i.e. the highway, and drive-throughs at fast food restaurants. Over the past five years, we've developed, and as I say, patented a solution that is highly effective at capturing road-based emissions. And the recent tests that we've had completed by an independent scientific engineering company have found our solution to capture up to 97% of all road-based emissions and then clean it to a rate of 99% clean air. So we've been affected by lockdown fairly considerably, I would say. As of December last year, we went public with the announcement that we have this technology. It's been completely confidential up until that point. And we began to make plans to employ an engineering company that could really validate our design and prove the effectiveness of our solution. And we started the project with this company as of March, which in terms of timing was difficult because obviously this company that we employed had to be based within their offices to really give us the results. So it kind of halted our progress to a certain degree. But thankfully, with the help of cloud-based computing, by the time April came around, the company that we employed were able to then work from home, control these computers that they had to use to make all these calculations from home as well. And with the help of Zoom and various other kind of meeting bits of software, screen sharing, etc., we was able to actually progress the solution a lot quicker than I thought we would have been able to even out of lockdown. In terms of financing, it has been difficult. And as I say, those scary points, I think, were in March and April. I think everyone was thinking the same thing. One, how long is this going to last? Two, what are the financial implications of each week or even each day that goes by that we're not able to trade? And three, I suppose the thought on most small businesses' mind was, do I have the cash to ride out the situation? I think in terms of future government support, in my opinion, the government really needs to focus on eco-businesses, companies that have focus and values that are going to improve the environment. It's all too often that we've seen post these real bad economic crises that pollution levels spike considerably in the aftermath as a result of companies needing to be proactive and make money by any means possible. And I think that would be a real shame for us to fall into that same trap that we saw 2008 and 2009, that once the economy did start to bounce back, um, lo and behold, the pollution levels skyrocketed. And we've been on a very slow decline in terms of our emission levels since that point. So for the sake and the well-being of both human health, wildlife, and of course, the atmosphere, I think it's absolutely imperative that if there's going to be further economic stimulus from the government, that it needs to be really focused on technology and companies that are willing to make improvement of our atmosphere their number one value. Thomas Delgado, Chief Executive and Founder of Pollution Solution. I guess, Susan, we've all rather enjoyed empty roads and no pollution. Will the crisis accelerate, you know, the, the move to a greener world? Or will we all forget about it in six months' time? I think the uh, Pollution Solution is actually a very, very good example of an organization that is hit very, very hard by an interruption of their business that might possibly lead them to feel that they've missed their window of opportunity. 
And I'm pleased that they seem to understand that they can try to thread the needle of making sure that they stay on track to pull their organization together, get the financial arrangements made so that they can continue to work and be prepared to meet the challenge once we're in kind of a post-COVID situation because clearly climate change is not going to go away and still does need to be addressed. And so now this organization already has a new challenge kind of being put on them. But my hope is that we won't just ignore climate change throughout this period of sort of shutdown and be able to come back to it and really, really have things in place to get back to work on the climate change issue. Although interesting as a futurist, it's difficult to know what the future technological solution will be. Are we all going to be driving electric cars, in which case pollution solution we don't need? Is the technology in pollution solution putting all those pipes under every single road in the world just too expensive? You know, as a futurist, it's almost impossible to go, well, that is, we know what the problem is. Well, that is going to be the preferred solution out of 30 preferred, you know. So, so what sort of futurist words do you have on looking at that and thinking, well, I don't know what the solution is going to be, but it's going to be one of 10 things. Normally, we try to sort of narrow down the uncertainties, but also look at a lot of different scenarios. And in this particular situation, Pollution Solution have made a bet on what they think things will be like in a time horizon that will be beneficial for them. So they're probably betting that we won't be having, you know, electric cars, no diesel or, you know, gasoline engines. And that also may shift to a point where instead of looking at cars, the world can shift to a more, you know, cycle or other method way of getting around. But, you know, there are other things out there on the horizon. And I think there will be a need for them in the short term, for sure. And then Anna, I thought what was quite interesting is what he said about cash, about investing and financing. If we are going to use this crisis to create a greener, fairer, more sustainable world, then that requires a whole load of investment and that requires financing, neither of which are easy at the moment. Indeed. It's a story we hear a lot from businesses still, even with the huge support packages that have been rolled out. And this is where this crisis is a bit closer to things that took place in the global financial crisis. Here we've got government money, we've got Bank of England money, and it needs to get to viable companies on the ground. Where are the blockages to that taking place? And how does government and the Bank of England ensure that it is going to viable businesses? There is still more work to be done by the government in ensuring that good businesses such as this one, which is aimed at delivering a greener solution, which is very much on the government agenda, the companies like that can make it through this very difficult time. And one other thing it made me think of as well, when they this company was talking about the partnership it had formed just before COVID kicked off, the company that was helping them with their work, it made me think about the stories we hear about supply chain vulnerability. It's not just about the company itself and its cash flow. It's about its vulnerability to other companies 
they work with. And again, that interconnectivity in the economy is another issue for the government to consider. Well, one thing many of us have been doing is watching a lot more films, box sets, and for me, comedy. Streaming services like Netflix have boomed, but making the shows we watch is made far more difficult in a pandemic. My name's Lucas Ochoa. I'm the Chief Creative Officer of the Scripted Division at Pulse Films, which is a production company making scripted drama, feature films, music videos and commercials. And my most recent production was executive producing Gangs of London, the Sky Atlantic show, which has now also been recommissioned for a second season alongside AMC in the United States. So we're unusual in the sense that we're multidisciplinary as compared to a lot of independent production companies in the UK drama space. Prior to lockdown, the UK drama industry was thriving, crowded, was being changed in a way by lots of big mergers and the arrival of streamers and the effects that that money was having on wages and the costs of production. But for me, as a new entrant into it with the TV shows that we had started to be able to make, both at Sky and at other places, it was a time of great opportunity. And I think that a lot of that still remains the case, but it's obviously been altered in terms of how everything works in light of COVID. COVID has affected the film and TV industry broadly. And I think most people first think about the practical realities of how you shoot and execute and how you would work with actors and what happens with makeup. I think that at the same time, probably the most profound impact that Corona is going to have on this industry is placing a different emphasis on the kinds of stories that people want to see and the kinds of stories people want to tell. And it will also have an impact, I think, on how we develop and who we develop those stories with as producers and as companies. And I think that what it's likely to do is make the stories that we're telling more local, more emotional, much more intimate in terms of their concerns. Those stories naturally shoot smaller casts, smaller ranges of locations, certain kinds of drama and perhaps comedy as well. The biggest challenge that the industry faces is that implicit in making television or film is forward planning. It requires that what you're able to do is make assumptions about your production and how you execute, which are based on a relative degree of certainty. And the number one thing that COVID has done, and we can see it in any industry, in our own lives, in our personal lives, in our professional lives, is it has introduced that moment to moment, week by week, often day by day, shifting sands in terms of what is the government advice, what is the prognosis for the immediate future, when are people likely to be able to travel, all of those sorts of things. And so I think that in the immediate sense, the biggest impact that it has is that that sort of ever-present uncertainty now or short-medium uncertainty that COVID introduces is the ambience in which we are seeking still to create budgets and schedules, and those are guided by scripts, which ultimately are the schematics that all shows are built on. They have to accommodate that degree of uncertainty. And that might on its face sound like a bad thing, but primarily drama's purpose is to reflect the world that we're living in and to absorb those realities and then to extrude them into what's on the screen. 
And so my hope, in a sense, about all of this is that what we can start to do is through absorbing those practical exigencies and working with them and harnessing them, we can start to create television and film, which is reflecting people's experiences. But there is no doubt that that challenge that would create that is the fact that planning just becomes so much more complex and requires a very different way of thinking. Lucas H.O. from Pulse Films. And Susan, what I thought most interesting was that what we are watching is changing because of this crisis. Psychologically, what we consume has changed because how we feel. I think that's absolutely true. And as an organization that often has to write narrative frames for clients to help them understand the complexity and the possibilities inherent in the scenarios and frameworks that we put forward for our clients, I think Pulse actually encompasses that very, very clearly, even more so than the other three stories that we've heard, because there's such a level of reach that we have with entertainment. And it's just been made all the more clear how much we rely on storytelling and narrative and entertainment to help us through all times, but particularly in this time. And I also found it interesting that he talked about how there will be different types of stories told that come out of this time of lockdown and uncertainty and the necessity to kind of reframe stories so that they're either more encouraging or they're more lighthearted. So we may see a lot fewer sort of dystopias in our science fiction going forward, both in literary and in entertainment or media terms. Susan, you're talking to the family who've watched Netflix's Eurovision Mickey take three times because it made us laugh. Fire and Saga, we would thoroughly recommend it makes the whole family laugh. Um, But it's interesting, it's not just the storytelling business. I was looking up at a newswire about Samsung, consumer electronics giant, um, with some new product launches. And they sort of build it as products for the lockdown generation. I wonder, Anna, How profound is this change, psychological change in this all, for business? Um, Well, the answer is highly, because these point to very significant changes in consumer spending behaviour and consumer preferences. And consumer spending accounts for two-thirds of the economy. So any fundamental changes in that area have huge implications for businesses across the whole economy. The other thing that Lucas mentioned is shifting sands, that literally week to week things change, but businesses need to plan months and years in advance. I mean, that, that's, that's exactly it, isn't it? The companies that are going to make it through this crisis are those who are able to be agile and responsive to changes day to day, but also manage to keep some capacity in their pocket to plan for the long term and make assumptions about changes which are happening now, the ones which are going to pass and the ones which are going to stick it out for the long term. And, you know, as we've talked about already, there's huge uncertainty around what changes will be temporary and what will be permanent. And it speaks to a hugely challenging business environment. 
It's time now for some concluding thoughts. So let's hear first from Michael Itzer's blog. Collectively, we need to question if the institutions of government, of civil society, of business and markets are fit for purpose. Do we have the courage to learn from this crisis? We have an opportunity to ensure that the choices we all make now create a pathway to that better tomorrow rather than back to where we left off. We must ask, what does this mean for each of us personally? What does it mean to the organisations we advise or work in? And are we all professionally ready? What do you make of that, Susan? What are your concluding thoughts? Um, I will actually quote an Italian co-op founder whose name unfortunately escapes me at the moment, but I think it captures very neatly sort of our forward-thinking way, and that is that we should do things that produce solidarity, not consume it. And I feel like that is also captured very nicely in the blog post, and it, it doesn't say it explicitly, but it does, you know, lead me to believe that that is the challenge that we are being given. Give that to me again, Susan. Produce <laughs> solidarity, not consume it. Do things that produce solidarity, not consume it. Anna. Are you going to be as profound? Um, I think not, I'm afraid. <laughs> I rather like it. I like that prof profoundity. Go on, go on. Uh, yeah. what, 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 business, for contrast. Okay, bu business ready for the challenge ahead, do you think? What do you want to leave the audience thinking about? Some businesses are facing in positively to the challenges ahead and some are struggling to stay afloat. We've heard some great stories, but there are lots of stories out there of businesses who are so focused on the struggle to survive that they have no time to think about what their market might look like next. It's clear that companies who are agile and innovative are going to be those best placed to lead us towards an economy fit for the future. There's definitely still a role for government here to help support the best companies in creating our future economy. This crisis has had a huge cost, both in human health, but in the financial burden on government. Businesses need to continue to work with government to help shape and direct future policies so that we can all work together to build that future world. Sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to the businesses who have spoken to us, Imran Navas from Tate and Lyle, Professor Rob Field from Iceni Diagnostics, Thomas Delgado from Pollution Solution and Lucas Echoa from Pulse Films. And of course, thanks to the panel, Anna Leach from the CBI and futurist Susan Cox-Smith. More Than a Number is brought to you by the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales. ICAW promote, develop and support chartered accountants and students around the world who use their expertise to ensure we have a successful and sustainable future.